Welcome to On the Edge with Eddie, detangling our Black identities. I am your host, Eddie Etsy. I am again thrilled that you are joining our journey to explore all the different shades of Black identities, have real conversations and discussions. Like I always say, our conversations, stories, and discussions are not meant to degrade. They're not meant to discourage. They're not meant to prove a point. Exploring our Black identities is all about learning, empowering, giving people a voice to tell the stories and of course at some time at times be a voice for people who don't feel comfortable telling their stories hashtag not all black people are the same <laughs> so today we are continuing uh, i'm continuing my conversation uh with uh someone i'll refer to as a black geek with an exquisite storytelling abilities a lawyer, a tourist, a photographer, a knitter, an overall interested person. She is devoted to academics. She has held practically every position um, in the university environment. A little church girl from Queens, New York to senior vice president and provost at Columbia College, Chicago. One of the best godmothers in the world. <laughs> Detail-oriented, process-focused, data-driven, problem-solving maniac, Provost Marcella David. Welcome again. How are you doing this fabulous day? I am doing well. I'm looking around to see who is this person you're introducing. That's very... <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I could say anything after that. It's all downhill from there. Well, you know, it is who you are, though. I mean, so first of all, last time you, we talked about snow. And did you get outside to take some pictures of the snow? Or I did. I yeah. did. I felt very brave um, because at on Saturday morning at 545 when it was four degrees out, um, I bundled up, put on the ski pants, uh, put the hot pockets in my pocket um, and I got in my car and I and I wasn't sure where I was going to go, where I could park, what it would be like, who would be there in the morning. But I found my way to the lake, um, Lake Michigan uh, near Adler Planetarium. And saw a really pretty sunrise and took some photos. So I was very, I was very proud of myself for uh, getting up and getting out and taking photos. And I uh, had a good time. I can't wait to see some of those photos. Um, again, what I'm going to do is um, I'm going to link your uh, Marcella Davies photography site in the pro in the podcast so people can take a look at it. There's some amazing photos in there. Then uh, I have to update course. it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's okay though. So, I mean, there, there's, there's some great stuff that you've done. You know, there's like, you know, the, the canvas prints, um, you know, they have, you know, the all about me section, which, you know, details all about you, of course, but that is not tell nearly half of, or probably one fourth of your story and all the amazing things you've done and gone through. Um, so last time we started talking about you in South Africa, um, mm -hmm. well, your international travels in, in, in all. So you talked about going to Iraq um, and then, you know, traveling to South Africa. More specifically, um, you found out that, quote unquote, you were white in South Africa due to you being American. Um, you're telling us about, you know, you're walking to a store and you got followed. But then when you spoke, all of a sudden, you know, people were your best friend. Um, and then, of course, the story of the are you acting um, the the police officer directions <laughs> because people just don't do that. But you said something that when you were in South Africa, you were filled with both joy and despair. Um, and I want to pick up our conversation from there um, and sort of ask, can you explain a little bit um, as a Black American in South Africa, why were you filled with both joy and despair at the same time? Yeah, that was such an interesting time. So that was 1992. And it was right in the middle of the transition of Mandela getting out of prison and um, kind of the transition to a more open and democratic society. 
And I spent time, I was doing research on the um, impact of economic sanctions and the um, morality and efficacy of economic sanctions. So I spent a lot of time in um, townships, which were uh, black communities um, outside of both Cape Town and uh, Johannesburg. And people live in ramshackle shacks that are built out of, you know, a piece of corrugated metal and a little bit of brick and a little bit of this um, up to houses. But it's this kind of very, you know, it's the communities were planned by the government to be places to warehouse people with the minimal amount of services and the minimal amount of luxury that you could possibly have, right? So they planned them, um, but it's like, okay, we've planned this and we've given you one water spigot for 16 plots of land or something like that. Um, And so I'm talking with these people and enjoying my opportunity as a black American to connect with these people. And there was a lot of optimism that, okay, we're now going to be a democracy and we're now going to have our say and, and it's now going to be better. And looking around and seeing the level of disparity, I was just in despair that that optimism was going to be crushed because I could not see how the young children that I was seeing playing around um, in those townships were going to grow up into a remarkably different life than what I could then see. Um, And almost 20 years later, I actually went um, back to South Africa. Um, I was visiting um, with my, um, some other godchildren, my twin godchildren, lovely Godchildren, in, who live in Albuquerque, and their parents. We and we went to South Africa. We explored the animals, and we did all those kinds of things. And then we spent two days in Cape Town, and driving from the airport to where we were staying in Cape Town, you could see those townships on either side of the highway, mm-hmm. and they didn't look that much different. Wow, they were still huge. They're still these kind of put together habitats, um, you know, the range, because townships do have houses and people who are relatively well off, but there's still that huge amount of crushing poverty. Um, and and, and that, that was what I was um, expecting to be the case. I'm surprised to this day that South Africa is still on that peaceful trajectory. I won't say it's, it's been smooth and there have certainly been setbacks, that they're still on that peaceful tra- uh, trajectory that Nelson Mandela had envisioned. Right. Um, so, so I guess my despair was a little misplaced at the time, but that's what I was afraid of. I don't want to start this conversation yet because <laughs> my next question is what you just explained. is not that much different from the United States. No, it's not. Right? That's why I could see it. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> And, and you, again, you've done a lot of work in, you know, international law um, and, you know, you've done a lot of work, work in diversity and all of that stuff. And I want to get to that. So I'm going to park that in, in the parking lot because, again, the system that you talked about that the government sets up for this group of individuals sort of, you know, well, here, you know, take you know, some drinking water, what else could you want in life, right? Um, That is sort of the exact same thing happening in the United States. So I'm going to park that for a second (laughs) because I want to, you know, round up the international travel. Um, So you went to then to um, um, uh, Tanzania and you had mentioned in one of the, uh, the articles that I read that um, you went on a trip to Tanzania and wanted to take a picture of this lovely woman who was running the camp. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was so engaged, charming, um, excited. But when you went to take a picture of her, she instantly went into serious face mode. She did. She um, did. <laughs> but you, you started singing Michael Jackson to make her laugh. And she never <laughs> she smiled never, did anything. She, she never did. It's so How, funny. What was going on there? You know, it's something that I've seen 
in a lot of places where I've traveled, um, and I'd say more predominantly in African nations than not. Um, and I don't know if it's because taking a photograph is still such a serious thing. And there's such a s- idea of, you know, you're dressing up and you're yep. taking a photograph and it's going to be this historical artifact mm-hmm. um, that hasn't been, you know, broken into by the kind of ubiquitous nature of cell, cell phones, taking right. photographs and people printing photographs and sharing photographs. Um, but it, it has happened in a lot of the African countries where I traveled, where as soon as you pull out a camera, unless right. it's a child, children seem to um, not, they may might start off that way, but you can kind of nudge them off of that into a more natural pose. Yeah. Um, but yeah, she wasn't, she wasn't going to smile. I'm like doing my best, practically dancing. And she's just like, um, you're taking my picture. This is my picture face. Right. so in Ghana people do that too right and it's funny so that they don't actually even look at the camera because you know and I've noticed this and I don't know why you know again people do this especially in African countries is when you're about to take a picture they will stop and look somewhere else (laughs) instead of looking at the camera and you're like oh no no look at the camera nope they just want to look somewhere else and I Again, I never understood why, and I found that very interesting. And I figured maybe you had an answer, but I don't have it. I don't have. I don't have an answer. I don't have an answer. With kids, they're so curious, and you know, when you can turn with digital cameras, particularly once I moved to digital cameras, when you can turn the camera around and show them, then they then they start to loosen up because then they can see what it looks like and they see what's going to happen. Um, but yeah, no, that was, that was, she was such a lovely person. She was so lovely. Oh, so how about, um, Cambodia? Um, so you were in Cambodia investigating the Cambodian government industry. First of all, (laughs) why were you investigating the government industry in Cambodia? Um, and then you also talked about capturing, um, this woman in the single click and she was sitting, um, on the market floor. And you could see history in this woman's face. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Tell me a little bit about that. Uh, So I went to, uh, so um, when Mary Sue Coleman was president of the University of Iowa, Mm -hmm. there was um, a concern that was raised by students uh, at Iowa and other institutions about um, the um, working conditions of people who were making university logoed um, garments. So I don't know if your people can see you, but I see you're wearing a Hawkeye, uh, your Hawkeye sweatshirt. And so, (laughs) (laughs) and so the question is when we go into the stores and we buy these things that have the university's kind of imprimatur on it, are they being made in conditions that respect the rights of people? And so uh, an organization was being created called the Worker Rights Consortium, which still is in existence. And I actually saw um, the director of it, Scott Nova, um, quoted in a newspaper article recently. Um, And it was created by a consortium of colleges and universities and human rights organizations and student organizations with the understanding that if a, a person was working in a place that was making those sweatshirts or the t-shirts or the hats or whatever we, we see yeah. that those people could bring a complaint to the worker organ, worker rights organization and they could investigate it. And as part of that, we are trying to understand the nature of the garment industry yeah. and it, it kind of waxes and wanes in different places. So there'll be um, places which will that have a lot of garment production and they'll be stable for about five or six years. And then there'll be another country or another region, which will be very high in garment production. And so an emerging region at the time was um, Cambodia. Uh, and so we went on a, a, a trip there to understand what was happening. Um, and it was, it was fascinating. There's so much history um, we were in Thailand as well, and there's so much history there, uh, ancient civilizations, um, but also a lot of political history, particularly in Cambodia, yeah. which, of course, was the site of um, a lot of political violence um, a few decades ago. And you can still see those scars. 
and and we went to this market where they're selling all of this exotic food food and fruit that I could not eat. <laughs> I got so sick on that trip. <laughs> But they're selling all of this exotic food and fruit that has spiky little dragon fruit with spiky little things. Um, And in all of this cacophony of kind of sound and bright lights and and noise and language and everything, sitting off in this corner was this woman. Um, And I just took one one frame, one picture of her. It's not a perfect picture because I could have framed it better if I was like, but it was just, I just saw her there and she was still in all of this noise. And I took that one shot and it became, I think my favorite shot of the entire trip. Once I got at home and was able to kind of look at her face and see what the camera captured. Because mm. the, the, you know, the glorious thing about cameras is that they can capture things that you can't see. They can capture detail that you can't see. And when I got in on this screen and I could just see her face and the lines in her face and her hands had scars and her feet and legs had scars on them. I was just, uh, I was just able to see a lot of that history on her. Hmm. How are you treated? Like, so you mentioned, you know, being a black woman going to South Africa and Iraq and what was it like for you, um, a black woman in Cambodia? Uh, I don't think it's it's it was black. It was just other. Okay. I mean, we are just we're all other. Um, we you know a group of yeah. like white, black, whatever people from America. We just stand out, but we're other. And you know, you're with a tour guide or a local guide, right. not a tour guide, but you're with local guides who are ushering you and people to see, oh, there's a group of others. <laughs> hmm, okay. So let's talk a little bit about um, the international stage. Again, you've done a lot of work in international law, uh, Ford Foundation Fellow in uh, Public International Harvard Law School. Um, you did a research interest from the use of economic and other um, sanctions, international criminal law, um, and, and a, a lot of questions related to international organizations. Um, let's talk about one, why your interest in um, international law, and secondly, racism in the international stage. Um, so I became interested in international law about the same time I became interested in law. And when I was uh, in the 1970s, an impressionable young woman becoming a teenager, um, there were two things that I would see on the screen of my television, protests about apartheid in South Africa Mm. and protests um, and and not just protests, but also the impact of um, war ongoing in the Middle East, particularly um, Israel and Palestinian conflict. And I would see these things happening on television. There was also um, the, um, the Iran hostage crisis. I see these things happening on television and I'd say to my parents, um, why are these things happening? <laughs> isn't there a law that stops this from happening? And my parents are looking at me and they're like, we don't know. You want to go to law school. You should figure that out whether or not there's a law. Um, So I I went to law school um, thinking I wanted to be a lawyer, knowing that I wanted to explore topics in international law. And when I got to my third year at the university of Michigan, I took a class with, um, um, Oh, gosh, why am I blanking on his name? Oh, it'll come to me. A professor who actually was Israeli uh, born who taught international law and international human rights. And he taught a seminar called Legal Aspects of the Arab-Israeli Conflict. Mm -hmm. And I walked into that seminar and I sat down and I said, I have been waiting. (laughs) (laughs) I have been waiting 15 years to take this class. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, Joseph Weiler. That's right. That was, he's mm-hmm. no longer at Michigan, Joseph Weiler. Um, and so, you know, that, and then I continued my, my studies in international law around that topic. And I realized there actually aren't very good answers. Um, the, the, the tension of being an internationalist and believing in international order 
and international law is that you, you have to um, navigate the reality that, you know, we will say there are laws and there are norms, but often power and the um, bold exercise of power wins out notwithstanding the fact that there are laws and norms. And we see it all the time in the use of uh, weapons of mass destruction and decisions to invade countries and decisions to ignore human rights violations. Often it's power and politics, even though there is this legal regime that is robust and has been developed. And so every day, you know, you kind of wake up and you say, hmm, do I believe in international law today? Because I have this example yesterday that shows that international law is a bit less effective than I hope. Does that mean it's a useless enterprise? Right. Um, so part of, part of that exploration has been women's rights. Part of that exploration has been the treatment of peoples and race and racism. Um, and, and, and I think, you know, that, you know, I could, there's lots of things that you can talk about in terms of race and racism and trying to treat or address racism as an international human rights norm, um, as well as within domestic legal systems. Um, but I'll just say that I think the funniest part about it for me, um, particularly when I was really much more actively engaged in research which, you know, you move into administration, you have less time to do research. Right. But, um, you know, the, 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 um, the, the being an academic in that space is sometimes challenging. Um, and Makao Matua, who's African-born, um, he's at SUNY, um, he, uh, he often would talk about the challenge of being, um, being, a minority person having a minority perspective in that space. Mm. Uh, and there was a whole kind of growth of critical perspectives around international law. And I remember, remember going to one conference where, you know, all of these people were standing up and they were saying, we just need more democracy because when we got more democracy, you know, Everybody, everything will be better because, and why do these people, why do these people not, you know, ta- not uh, understand that democracy is always the best course? And I'm like, you do know. <laughs> these people, <laughs> you, do, you do know that, you know, I'm a black person, I'm an academic, I'm an American, I believe in democracy, but I understand that it's not perfect. <laughs> That we had a democracy that had slavery. We had a democracy that had oppression. We have a democracy that still has not lived up to all of the ideals that are expressed under our constitution, let alone international human rights norms. And there's this pause. And they're all like, kind of metaphorically patting me on the head. And then they moved back into waxing poetic about how, you know, just as long as we have democracy, it'll solve everything. And, 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 you know, you see that you see with the waves and pushes of democracy, um, the Arab spring and all, I mean, Egypt is just fascinating, right? Um, Because, you know, you had this push for democracy and then the people who won were people who we didn't like. Right. (laughs) And so we kind of soft pedal the whole overthrow of the democratically elected government and the reimposition of martial law and repressive regime. So on all your travels in all the different countries and, you know, having um, be part of, you know, all this change in organizations, government and stuff like that. Do you ever on the way back to the United States, again, I feel like this a lot of times when I travel outside the United and coming back, um, I sit on the plane and I'm just like, oh, here I go again to this dark and gloomy place. <laughs> Do you ever get that sense when you're coming back to the United States? I wouldn't say I, I have ever had that specific sense, but... Um, I've been to Cuba twice. Mm. And the first time I went to Cuba, 
which is, you know, not the place of evilness and, and lack of joy that, you know, we like to consider it here in the United States. We're going to save it from itself. I don't, I, I mean, I'm not going to say Cuba is a light and airy place. It's fun and, uh, and glorious, but you know, there are a lot of people who raise everyday people I spoke with in Cuba who raised legitimate concerns about the influence that the United States tries to assert over Cuba. Um, but I went to Cuba and, you know, there's a lot of poverty in Cuba, yeah. um, at least particularly at the time that I went there. I think it's a little better now because the economy has been opened up, at least on the European front. Um, and I came back and I happened to I happened to have a trip to Las Vegas right after I went to Cuba. And there is nothing like going to Las Vegas, which is a place that I, nope. I'm not, I'm not going to lie. I enjoy going to, I don't gamble, but you know, in its heyday, you could go there for a weekend, have a lot of good meals, see yep. good shows and yep. go to a spa. Yes. And I like that. I'm a hedonist. I'm not afraid to admit it. I'm a, I'm happy to do that. But I went at, I went to Las Vegas and, and I just, I mean, there's, I just wanted to go up to people and just say, why don't you just burn your money? I mean, <laughs> this is, I felt so bad. <laughs> I felt so con uh, over the top consumption. I mean, it's fantasy land where, yeah. you know, we've recreated New York on a city block and we've recreated the pyramids in another city block and a castle with jousting in another block. And I just want to say, we're just so bad. We're just so wasteful. We're just... We're just so un, unaware of how lucky we are as a country. Right. So. Huh. All right. So <laughs> I, <laughs> I am, um, I'm going to get serious for a second. Okay. <laughs> it's like, uh-oh. You've dedicated a lot. I mean, a lot. And you're very committed to um, the DEI space, right? So diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, and from your time at the University of Iowa to your time in Florida, even now at Provost in um, Columbia um, in Chicago, like one of your commitment um, is really to DEI, right? Why do you think, first of all, again, I'm asking this, I know the answer, but I want, <laughs> I want us to be on the same page. Why do you think DEI is such one, a, needs to be a growing space in academia and two the importance of DEI um, in in the universities um so my parents I'm going back sorry my parents went to college when I was a little girl um, my mother actually was going back to college because when she was 16, mm. um, she actually um, had gotten the opportunity to go to college. And um, so 16 would have put her in like the late 40s, early 50s, something like that. Yeah. Um, and her mother, who you know was born in the times of sharecropping, and was a woman, notwithstanding she was a strong woman who managed to um, raise a family having been widowed twice. Mm. Um, she said to my mother that you really need to be a secretary or a teacher and why would I waste my electricity um, helping you go to college? Wow. <laughs> so my mother didn't do it. <laughs> And um, held on to that dream. And then, um, you know, she and my father with a bunch of their other friends took advantage of the City University of New York program that was specifically reaching out to um, Black and other diverse adult learners and offering the opportunity to go to college. Mm -hmm. So she would drop me off at Little Friends Day Care Center on her way to Queens College in New York. And she said, you're going to school and I'm going to school. 
And so my, um, and I remember going to her, my father's graduation. I remember going to her graduation and how important it was to our community to have that. And I was part of our church community as well. A lot of those people right. were at church who were going to college. And so for me, that question of access was inextricably linked to my childhood and my perceptions of education because my father before it was um, a mover. Uh, he was a big guy. So he would strap um, refrigerators and other big furniture to his back and move them, you know, by walking upstairs and walk up apartments in New York yeah. and make bagels. <laughs> and my mother was a telephone operator and they both moved into the middle class. My father became a manager at Grumman Aerospace. My mother became an occupational therapist working in a New York City school um, system. And that was really important to me. And so for me, the question of access and support, meaningful access that doesn't just drop somebody in and give them an experience where they're feeling like an other and alienated and unappreciated is, is critically important. Yeah, it's critically important. And I, I'm sorry, I have to go back to high school for a moment yep. because in the last time I talked about going to high school and I said, and I believe it to be true that nobody there, everybody there, I believe judged me on my accomplishments and nobody there said to me, oh, you know, as was said to me in high school, you just got in because you're black and you're not deserving to be here. Right. Um, but But I will say it's not like my high school was, not a place where race was um, imprinted on, on the daily life. So we would be in classes together and then we'd go to the lunchroom and all the black kids would sit in one table and all of the kind of Asian kids would sit over on that side of the room and all the white kids would sit on that side of the room. There's like one white kid who used to hang out with the black kids. And people always ask them, why are you hanging out with the black kids? Because the separation was important. But in terms right. of the respect, I never felt that I was disrespected. The predominant um, um, demographic there is now people of Asian descent. And so it's created this very interesting political dilemma and racially political uh, dilemma within, within New York which wants to pit people who are disadvantaged against each other. And I really, I mean, I think the, the, the lesson that I take from it, which is not necessarily the lesson that other people take from it, is that it shows how badly the schools are, the K through eighth grade or K through ninth grade schools are, in the neighborhoods where black and Latino students are. That education is just not up to snuff. And I think that's, that's the lesson people should take from it, but they're not taking that. It's now kind of pitting people for this scarce resource against each yeah. other. But um, at that, that's, my, that's my story and why for me, access is important. And as I have looked at access, I like many people have changed my perspective because at first it was let us into the room right. and then you realize getting into the room and being ignored in the room or uh, people being so hostile to you that you wanted to actually voluntarily leave the room yep. is no better than not being in the room at all yep. right so what does meaningful access mean what is what does access mean that is welcoming and, and not just pandering because right. then access is like, okay, well, we're going to accept you and we're going to recognize you're different than us, but we're going to still keep you in that space of being an other. Uh, well, okay. How do you say we're going to welcome you and recognize that you're different than us? And that might mean we need to make us different too. Right. Yep. Or give something up, right? Exactly. Um, you, you bring up a, a fantastic point because a lot of times, again, from my perspective, being you know a black man in, in in the space of you know both academia and technology and all the different spaces, um, to me, I think institutions, especially public institutions, again, I may be wrong, but they focus more on the diversity part of the DEI, and it doesn't seem like 
the equity and inclusion piece is something that they spent a lot of time on. But at least for me, from my perspective, you know, I think the more that institutions spend time on the inclusion piece, making sure people are feeling welcome, you know, their voice is heard and they're treated, um, you know, they're treated basically like humans and not subhumans, the diversity piece usually will end up taking care of yourself because then we start telling stories of, oh, I love working here because of this. I love doing this because of this. And then the recruitment process, you know, sort of takes care of itself. Um, I am interested to think if that's the same for you, do you think that as institutions, again, we can look at you know, the private institutions, you've been part of the private uh, universities and then public institutions. Do you think it's different for private versus public? And do you think that, you know, we spend a lot of time worrying about the diversity piece and not the equity and the inclusion part? Well, okay. So there's a lot there. I'll take two threads. And okay. one, is, one thread is to say, um, I have been in a, I mean, I've, I've been, well, my own education started off being private and then I went public because uh, I went from Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute to University of Michigan. Um, and then when I started my career, I actually um, similarly, um, you know, spent time in both private law schools and public law schools. But my heart was always pri was always public, right? I always thought public universities are those places that really think about access, right? right. And so public universities are that space that I want to operate in because they're at, they're the places that are actually access oriented. And I came to realize that that's not actually true. Um, it might have been true right. at one point in time, but there are two things I think that have made it different. One is that the um, funding model for public universities today, um, and, and, in, and, in, and importantly, big research um, institutions today, all is about them being able to say, we have the best students and therefore we're going to go after the best research dollars and we're going to have the best whatever. Mm. And, and so that drives them away from access, you know, because access requires you to understand what impact um, standardized tests has on varying communities. And, I, and that's not just a racial thing, that's also primarily an economic thing. Right. Um, and you have to understand that, you know, uh, it might require you to think about things a little bit differently in terms of support, in terms of the way that you're structuring things. And that's, a, that's going to be a very hard to do if what you're trying to be is the best public institution in the country. Right. So uh, let me interrupt. <laughs> I don't mean to interrupt, but I mean to interrupt. So how does that work for like... Um... Uh, FAMU, right, um, which is a historically Black college. Um, how does access work for spaces like that? Yeah, it's, I mean, I, I think it's the same challenge, actually. So it's not an interruption. Um, because in Florida, A&M is part of the state university system. So yeah. it is a public historically Black university. And the state university system is really on this drive to be they want they want florida wants their state university system to be excellent it wants it to be highly ranked and it not just the you know one or two big ones like um university of florida university of central florida um they want all of them to kind of meet metrics and some of the metrics are at least well they changed the metrics because they got so much pushback against them but some of the metrics were metrics that were made it harder to support even the black students who were attending Florida A&M. Mm. Um, and, and that 
you know, that, that's a, that was, that was a bit of a tension there and where their answer to it was to say, well, those students should all just go to community college. And then after the community college fixes all those things, right. then they can come to Florida A&M. And it's like, that's no, that's not the mission. That's not the way it should be thought about. So that I think is a bit of a challenge. Hopefully I don't get into trouble for saying all that, but although I believe it is true. Right. Um, so, so, you know, I think that's so, so that quest for excellence and rankings is one challenge. And then the other challenge is that in some states, of course, um, um, there's a political overlay yeah. that is, um, you know, layered on top of public universities operating. Getting back to the last part of your question, um, I am happy to be at a private institution. <laughs> I am happy to be at a private institution because, you know, I'm not going to say private institutions can act outside of the law. We absolutely are not acting outside of the law. We're not, we're not discriminating against people. We're not, we're not, you know, but, but, but we can say we value diversity, equity, and inclusion, and mm. we can work to make the E and the I, as you said, right. as important as the D. Right. And we <laughs> are working. There are people who are on this campus who have been working for years to make the equity and inclusion part of classroom structure, part of the way that you know we approach classroom and course design. And, and that's just really important to me to be in a space where that is prioritized in that way. Yeah. So along the same lines of the equity and inclusion piece, um, personal question for you in regards to code switching. Um, do you find yourself code switching um, to make people feel comfortable um, with you? Or in, in another way of asking the question is, have you ever had to lessen your blackness so your white colleagues and other people that you're in the same space with don't get intimidated or you know, feel comfortable with you? Yeah, so I'm going to challenge you and say that I have I have felt that I have had to be a less authentic me in both the space of being amongst white colleagues and being in the space amongst black friends and family. Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, I, I talked about my church. There are yep. people there who said, "Oh, one day Marcel's going to marry a white man because she's an Oreo cookie." <laughs> wow. Uh, <laughs> Oreo cookie. <laughs> I mean, honestly, right? I mean, because I, I went to Stuyvesant High School because yeah. I was going to college because I was going to England because I said I wanted to travel around the world because I said I wanted to do all those things. Um, they, this, you know, people said that to me. They said yeah. that to me because I used big words um, and because I, whatever, um, yeah. was interested in different kinds of music and different kinds of food and different kinds of cultural experiences. Um, and, and, and then so similarly, yeah, you know, I don't, I don't, I honestly, I'm too old to pretend I'm like hip. So it's not like I'm kind of hip and cool anymore. And I have a lot, I got my <laughs> finger on the pulse of kind of black slang and vernacular. Right. I, I don't, <laughs> I used to, and certainly I would be very careful to not talk like that in spheres where it was inappropriate. Absolutely. Um, I don't think it was an effort to hide my race or ethnicity often it was just like in a legal environment there's just some things you can't say in a legal yep. environment right yep. um drummy reminds me of that all the time you can't <laughs> say that you can't say that i'm like what do you mean i can't well no if you're gonna hang out with my law school friends you can't you can't speak like that you can't I'm like yes ma'am <laughs> yeah so 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 there's that aspect of it um yeah. so i i yeah i i at this point in time i'm I try to be me, yep. but I, me as a person who, as, as a lawyer, as a legal professional, word choices to me mean a lot. Mm, yep. And so I'm always making choices about the words that I use. Right. Um, so you know, that sometimes will mean a mild expletive in my professional setting right. is a word choice that I'm using. 
but it also means that in, in the conversation that we've just had, I've used several multi-syllabic words, um, but I chose them because they're precise, because they mean they they mean what they mean, and I wanted to use them in that way. Absolutely, yeah. Did you or did you um, maybe not now, but did you ever struggle with your identity uh, between the um, oriental, what is it? <laughs> oriental Oreo cookie. Yeah. <laughs> being, being the Oreo cookie and being, you know, seen as, you know, a black or did you ever struggle with any of that identity at all um, within your life? And how did you overcome that? You know, I think the point in which I struggled with it was, um, probably in my late teens and early 20s. Mm. Um, so my grandmother, my father's mother, um, was white complected. Right. And, you know, she came from British Guyana. And that was a place where, you know, there is a racial hierarchy. There was, you know, sugar plantations and all those kinds of things. And there right. was a lot of, you know, mixing either through coercion or through um, desire across racial barriers. And so um, the, her whole family had this, I'm going to, oh gosh, I'm going to get so much in trouble, had this <laughs> obsession with complexion. Yeah. And so our, I remember she had a cousin whose name was Lily, uh, an older cousin whose name was Lily. And then cousin Lily died. She was 80 something years old. Cousin Lily died. And my family went to cousin Lily's funeral and we get there and there's the program and the program has a picture of her and everything else. So I know I'm in the right place. Mm. except the name on it is Gertrude. And I'm like saying to my mom, I'm like, mom, we called a cousin Lily. Why is, why is the name there Gertrude? And she said, shush. <laughs> when we got back in the car, she said they called her cousin Lily because she was light complected. They called her cousin Lily because she was Lily White. And that was so valued uh -huh. in her family. Uh -huh. And my grandmother had um, an even lighter complexion, although she had a wide nose, right? She, my, she, had, yeah. she, yeah. she and my dad had, so, so she wasn't quite as kind of passing as it were. She had blue eyes. She had blue eyes, light, light blue eyes. Mm. Um, and so I was very conflicted about what does it mean to be black in that space, but it was really tied to both my skin color um, and how that was perceived not only in white communities and other communities, but also within my own community. Um, and also this heritage where, you know, people would talk about you and my grandmother's complexion came from Scottish people and her maiden name was Grant because because she they were Scots who who were doing the sugar cane because it was related to everything else that so it was this very odd kind of um identity crisis um that was just all had to do with skin color yeah wow huh. um let's talk a little bit about the system <laughs> The system. <laughs> the system. So, and I'm going back to the parking lot now. Um, and you were talking about your experience in South Africa and how, you know, the, the there was a system set up that says, you know, hey, you know, again, we're giving you drinking water. So what else do you want? Right. So, you know, people were segregated and put in the spaces and, you know, 20 years later, it's still exactly the same. Um, I, I want to talk about the system uh, using the example of uh, Amy Cooper's incident, right? Um, so Amy Cooper is the was the 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 white lady that was over at Central Park, um, and then she ended up calling the cops and said Christian Cooper, who is a black man, uh, no relations at all. Um, uh, who was bird watching, right? So again, it's a black man bird watching in Central Park, minding her own, his own <laughs> business, right? This white lady called the cops and said, hey, this black uh, man is threatening me and, you know, you need to come and arrest the person, right? Um, and of course, you know, for me, it's like, you know, Amy Cooper 
is using her privilege as a weapon, right? And, you know, again, to me, the systematic racism has been part or a parcel of the United States history um, for a really long time, right? And so I'm trying to understand the system um, from healthcare, education, wealth, law enforcement. The system is set up in a way, at least from my point of view as a black man, that whatever I do, there are certain things or certain spaces that I am being told I am not going to be successful. I am being told I'm not going to be enough to be in that space. Um, there's all these glass ceilings, even though, you know, people like you, you know, break all those glass ceilings and go above and beyond and, you know, accomplish greatness. But to the common Blacks, they're still stuck in the system. Let's talk about the system. I want to get your viewpoint on the South African system, right? And the American system, the injustices, the systematic racism. Do you think it's ever going to get better? I mean, we're so glad for people like you fighting for us every day, day in and day out, um, committed to, um, you know, accessibility and, you know, making sure, you know, access is there for um, everybody else. Do you think it's ever going to ever get better? Um, and what would it take to get better? You know, it's so there's so there's so many answers. One answer is yesterday I actually literally had this conversation with one of my colleagues and I said it's not going to get better. And then he looked kind of sad and I said, <laughs> Oh, you have children. Cause I don't have children, right? I said, You have children and you were probably hoping that, you know, their future would be include a future where we had actually moved past all of these problems. And he's like, No, he says. I don't have that illusion because I'm a, I'm, I've studied musical history. And so I believe that everything is cyclical and it, you know, it might be approached or looked at in a different way, but it's all fundamentally the same. And so we both like depressed each other and then we went home for the day. Um, and I think the answer is also, I, I would, I would have had a different answer six years ago. Mm. I did not believe, I did not believe that electing Barack Obama meant we were post-racial. Right, yep. I did not believe that, but I didn't appreciate how many white people in this country were horrified and threatened by his simple election <laughs> until Donald Trump ran. Right. And when Donald Trump ran for president, it exposed how many people were seething for the eight years that Obama was president and how they absolutely hated. I, I don't honest, honestly, I don't think I think of I think of Barack Obama as being president. Right. I don't think he was a black president. I, you know, I, I actually, uh, I actually think that one of the strategies that he had to embrace was that he was not going to overtly privilege kind of black right. um, empowerment as part of his presidency, uh, even a teensy weensy bit. And the one or two times when he yep. actually tried to project race as an issue, he got slammed. Right. Uh, in ways that white people don't. Um, and, you know, and I actually don't think of him as being in the panoply of American presidents, a, a particularly uh, radical American president. I think he did a good job. I don't think he was a, you know, I think he did a good job with the recession. I think he did a good job with the economy, but, but I don't think he's, you know, he was a president who, I would say was the bestest president in the, in the country's history. I just, I, I mean, I, it's nothing against him. I don't think he was a bad president. I think he was just a president. president I, right. I, and I just mean that in a way to say that he was, his record should be non-threatening right. in its normalcy. Right. Yep. And, and yet they were elected. By, yes. Right. Yes. It's not that, it's not that he got a hand me that he was elected twice in a row Sometimes I'm thinking by the same people yes. who are extremely upset that he was elected. 
Well, I don't know. Maybe they were voting against him, but I don't know. But, but, but their states didn't vote against him, but okay, fine. You know, but he was just, he was just a president. He was, he was a president. I I think a non-threatening record that they were incredibly threatened by simply because he was who he was. Um, And because society changed um, so that, you know, people, and it wasn't because of him. I mean, right. you know, the, the, um, the, uh, the decision of the Supreme Court about um, same-sex marriage, that was the Supreme Court. That wasn't him, but he was president. Yep. Um, you know, that was actually authored by Kennedy. I mean, Kennedy was not <laughs> a democratically appointed uh, Supreme Court justice. But, you know, they, they, they the society changed around him and I think around them and they blamed him. And when Donald Trump ran the level of hatred for change, Mm. and that's what it is. It's hatred for change, modest advancements. You're changing my country and I don't like it. Mm. And so I think I was I was really surprised by that, and I was really depressed by that. Um, uh, and then Donald Trump lost, <laughs> and it got worse. <laughs> I, I don't know. What, and, right. and, yep. and it got it got worse. And I used to think, you know, and now I'm going back two years ago. <laughs> I used to think, okay, but these are the old people, right? And one day they'll die as everyone does. Right. And the new generation, which is more progressive around social issues will come forward and, you know, we'll be able to move past this moment. Yeah. And there, and the young people are, you know, storming the Capitol. Yep. <laughs> and so, so I, I, you know, I, that's, that's why yesterday I said to my colleague, yes, it's kind of never going to change. I don't see it ever changing. Mm. Sorry. So what can we do as black people, <laughs> black individuals um, who are, you know, fighting for change and trying to make things better for the younger generation to follow? Um, what 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 should we be doing? Or what what? I mean, again, part of it is I think you know people want to have a comfortable conversation, but from my experience, even doing this podcast that I've talked to people, you know, my white friends about uncomfortable conversations, they actually don't mean they want to talk about uncomfortable things. They want to talk about things that will make them feel good. That, <laughs> right. That's my experience. So what can we do? Is there anything we should be looking at? We should be doing, we should be teaching our friends, our white friends, or even our black friends that, you know, think that, Oh, you're too, you're a, a white black person, right? I mean, what can we do um, in that space? Like, I'm not like I've been referred to that. Oh, you're not black enough to be a black American, right? You're African, and you know, you sound you don't you you don't sound black. I'm like, oh well, thank you, I appreciate that, right? <laughs> <laughs> and you know, there's this whole crisis of identity out there, and I'm like, if it's not gonna get better, what can we do about it? <laughs> Yeah, I, I, yeah, and, and I'll be interested after you're you settled into your podcast and you take the answers to these questions and string them all out to see yep. if there's an answer. Um, on it. <laughs> I, I, I don't know that there is an answer. I think, I think when I was growing up, and I think this is part of the reason why the language around this work has changed from affirmative action to um, integration to diversity to yep. now diversity, equity, and, and inclusion, inclusion to and now inclusion. anti-racism, yep. right? I think that's because different strategies have, have been tried. Yep. Um, I, I actually, I don't want to say I'm anti-integrationist. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't want to say that, but I think I think for me, there's a question of self-reliance and self-reliance means supporting and uplifting the community. 
and continuing to engage in the community in ways that we haven't. I mean, so, so what has happened is that there has been white flight, but there's also been black flight, right? right. So, you know, it, like the Jeffersons and moving on up, right? We're yep. in this neighborhood in Queens, but now we got money. So right. now we're going to move up to a deluxe apartment in the sky, right? Yep. Um, and, and I'm in a, I'm, I'm in one of those apartments, right? So <laughs> I can't talk. This but, is amazing. <laughs> thank you. But, but, um, but, you know, I've been thinking about this recently because there have been some interesting conversations about the Tulsa riots and some efforts to um, think differently about development in Tulsa, in that community, right. as a way of restoring the vibrancy of the community, which is about reinvesting in the community. And, and, and that's kind of where I'm beginning to explore and think about a way forward, because as we've left communities, right, then the communities that have remained have struggled with schooling, they've struggled, struggled with tax base, they've struggled with housing, they've struggled with crime. Yep. And so what are the ways in which we can reinvest in communities to try and stop that decline. That I think is what I'm beginning to think about. And then, um, you know, a couple of years from now, you can see whether or not I've, I've actually put my money where my mouth is. Well, great. So <laughs> I, I, I am going to uh, put that in my podcast notes. that says check in with Marcella in six months. Um, six months. Wait, I said a couple of years. Wait well, a minute. I, I mean, you need, you need, you need someone to hold you accountable, right? <laughs> I, I am, I'm volunteering myself because I'm super interested in, you know, where that goes. I mean, I think, you know, that's uh, that's an uh, absolutely phenomenal um, idea and invest in the community. I mean, you know, like you said, you know, they've tried so many things, you know, another buzzword is intersectionality, right? Um, that's something that, you know, people are talking about now. Um, but again, it, like I said, they've tried and it's just evolving. And, you know, maybe if we invest in the community and we invest in you know, the younger generation, and, and I truly believe the younger generation is probably what's going to if anything happens, they will be the ones to actually make that change. Mm. Um, but anyway, so, hey, our time is up. Well, you know, I, I want to make sure, you know, you're a busy lady and I don't want to take all your time. So um, I am going to end this part two, take two um, on here. But before you go, though, I want to ask you a little bit about your knitting and crocheting. Um, and because you, you're like hardcore. I mean, you can make money off this and this could be a whole different profession um, for you. And you, well, you took part of, um, I think it was called um, Craftism, uh, the Craftism Project, which was called Empower People, um, mm -hmm. where you crochet like purple uh, bandanas and, you know, um, what you advocated for voting. And, you know, you've crocheted like many, many things. You've, you know, done crazy animals for Sissy and, why crocheting and well, why did you get there? <laughs> I mean, I have to say, I have to say, I've say more of a knitter than a crocheter. Okay. And that's, you know, I, the, the, I don't want to, I would shout out to my friends who crocheters are called hookers. I want to uh, shout out to my hooker yeah, friends hookers, yeah. um, that, you know, I appreciate that I'm only a modestly engaged in, in hooking. I'm much more okay. engaged in knitting. Um, and, but I, I learned what, you know, I said, I went to little friends daycare. I learned the first time when I went to little friends daycare and then I put it down. And then, um, when I went to uh, study abroad, there yeah. was uh, a woman there, actually, I think I mentioned her in the first podcast, an Iraqi woman yep. who was knitting something. And I said, will you knit me something? And she said, no, but I'll teach you how to knit. Mm. So she kind of retaught me how to knit. And I was just putzing around making something that I never finished. And then I went to visit a friend of mine, a, a current, still a friend of mine, somebody I, I see almost every year, every other year, uh, at, who lives in Northern England. And she, I had mentioned that I had picked up knitting again and she um, took me to a store and I 
bought some cheap yarn and some cheap needles and she helped me complete something. Mm. And it was a really tacky, ugly vest, but I completed it and I wore it. And that kind of launched me into knitting. Um, And I love it. I love the feel of it. I love the construction. I love the history. Um, You know, I love learning things like about how, Aaron sweaters worn by fishermen had the family name kind of written into it in case they fell overboard. People would know who the fisherman was. I love learning all of that kind of stuff about it. And, And when I travel, it's linked because I'm always taking knitting with me when I travel. And then when I travel, sometimes I've been, well, not sometimes, always, I go and I try and find out where's the closest knitting store to where I'm staying. And knitting is like its own language. And so I remember going to a store in Paris and she did not speak English and I did not speak French, but we both spoke knitting. So I, I, I just enjoy it. It's relaxing. I, I, it's, it's challenging and relaxing. It's something I can feel accomplished about. Uh, and it's a, it's a vice that I, you know, I, I have more yarn than I will ever be able to knit in my life, but I buy more all well, of the time because I, it, <laughs> it's just delicious to imagine what I can make. Well, just like everything else that you've done, you are absolutely remarkable, phenomenal, amazing, astonishing, all of those adjectives, um, exceptional, staggering, marvelous, magnificent. (laughs) (laughs) You're great at it. And again, like I said, you are just an absolutely divine human being. And I am so lucky and blessed to know you and have you part of my life and be a godmother to Tessie. Thank you so much for your time. Um, thank you for the conversation, being real, and just, you know, just talking your storytelling. I'm like, just, oh, amazing. Um, I am going to give you another minute to send a message out to the world, though. So whenever you're ready, use your minute, send out another message out to the world. What do you want the world to hear from you from this podcast? Oh, wow. I'm, I, I, I think I've sounded pessimistic and I am sometimes pessimistic, although I'll say realistic, but I'm also optimistic. And so if you have a dream, I never would have imagined the little black girl that I was would be where I am today. Yep. And that's because I just kept trying. So even though there are barriers, try and find people to help you over those barriers. Um, and I'm not a Pollyanna. I don't think everybody gets to succeed, but I, I hope that you won't just stop trying anyhow. Oh, amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much. Hey, you are talking to what we're talking, listening to Marcella David, uh, Senior Vice President and Provost, Columbia College in Chicago, a phenomenal woman, a lawyer, tourist, photographer, knitter, everything, a little uh, church girl from Queens, New York, to doing everything and anything in the world. You are definitely a role model to many, many, many people, including myself. We love you. Thank you so much. Until we talk again, stay blessed, stay awesome, stay beautiful. You're amazing. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs)